and welcome to another edition of Lost in Science. We're still on our summer break, so we have been raiding the archives for some science stories to keep you entertained through the hot weather. This week I'll be looking into the idea that sunscreen can prevent the uptake of vitamin D. Chris will be looking back at some archaeological finds which cast into doubt the gender roles of women throughout history and Claire will be comparing humans to fish so stay tuned. Sunscreen has been shown scientifically to reduce the risk of sun damage to the skin, which in turn reduces the rate of aging and the risk of skin cancers amongst other things. Now Australia is one of the places in the world with a very high rate of skin cancer, but another health issue that's become apparent in recent years is vitamin D deficiency, and that has mm. become prevalent in Australia as well. So vitamin D is a chemical that humans need to avoid things like rickets and osteoporosis. Uh, and we can absorb it from food, but also can make vitamin D in our own bodies in the lower layers of our epidermis. Now the reaction that makes vitamin D is dependent on exposure of the skin to UVB radiation, which right. comes from the sun. So most people normally would get adequate exposure to the sun and that works perfectly well. But some people have wondered about vitamin D and sunscreen as there seems to be a correlation between increased sunscreen use and vitamin D deficiency in some parts of the world. And, and that kind of makes a degree of sense because the sunscreen itself is designed to block radiation from the sun from damaging your skin. And it's so much information out there, it's probably beyond the casual reader to sift through it all. But luckily for us, scientists love to publish in journals and they also have to review work that's already been done because if they want to start new research, they have to know what is already uh, occurred and what other people have found. So in 2019, a group of Australian scientists conducted a systematic review of literature in journals about the connection between vitamin D and sunscreen use that had been published since 1970. So they ignored earlier stuff. They focused on stuff since 1970, which is still, you know, 50, nearly 50 years worth of, of info they're looking at. Um, they looked at a number of different kinds of studies, including experimental studies using artificial UV lights, as well as field trials and observational studies, uh, which are more sort of self-reported type studies. So their analysis showed that during experiments using artificial UV lights, there was some decline in the presence of vitamin D in the tested subjects when they applied sunscreens. So in those artificial experiments using artificial UV lights, there was a reduction in vitamin D. They also noted though, that the specific wavelengths of light from those artificial lamps were not really closely matching to what the sun actually puts out right so you know they've got these artificial uv lights they did an experiment put sunscreen on oh, they've got lower vitamin d levels but it the guys doing the review said 
this UV light's not really what you get when you go outside. So it wasn't a great model for the sun. No, and and probably uh, I think people have moved away from that kind of experiment too. So they've they've kind of gone into another um, uh, realm, another another method of experimentation. But theoretically, using sunscreen could lower the amount of vitamin D a person has in their body. So then they looked at randomized controlled field studies of sunscreen use. So this is actual testing of real world sunscreen on people who are going outdoors and doing things that you do outdoors while wearing the sunscreen and some people not wearing the sunscreen. So they're randomized controlled field studies. What they found was that there was no effect from using sunscreen on vitamin D levels. So normal people using normal sunscreen in normal conditions didn't get any reduction in the level of vitamin D. So under the real world conditions, it probably doesn't have that effect. And then finally, they looked into results from self-reported observational studies. Now, there's an issue with self-reporting in that how accurate is it going to be? Yeah, it's relying on the on the you know on the on the veracity of the participants to report exactly what they've yeah, done. Yeah, of course, which can be an issue. Uh, but what they found the results from those studies was that there was no relationship between sunscreen use and vitamin D levels, except in some studies, there was an increase in vitamin D in people who wore sunscreen more often. So what they're suggesting or what the authors kind of uh, took from that was because it was self-reported, if people use sunscreen more often they're probably going out in the sun more often than people who use sunscreen less often. And obviously sunscreen has a, you know, a sort of a, a, a bell curve of effectiveness. It works really well and then tapers off over yeah, time. So, yeah. so these people out in the sun more yeah. are reapplying it more, but they're still getting that incidental mm-hmm. exposure to the sun. So maybe that their vitamin D levels are higher mm. just as a result of being in the sun more often. So it is hard to say, but... Um, what they did find is in, in real world conditions, really it has no impact on your vitamin D levels. So probably, you know, just keep wearing the sunscreen. But one thing they did mention was that there has been less study into the higher sun protection factor products that are on the market now. So most of these, uh, testing and most of the, um, uh, the articles they looked at were on older sunscreens, which have a sun protection factor of about 15, which is, okay. used to be the old top of the of the sun uh, the sunscreen range. Um, now, the thing about that is that uh, the scale is is got a diminishing increase. So the higher the number gets, the less difference there is between the next lowest number. Um, so a 50 plus sunscreen is not five times more effective yeah. than a 10 plus sunscreen. Um, it's, it's, it's slightly better, but it's not five times better. So the higher the number, the less of an increase there is each time the number goes up. Um, but look at this point, based on all of this analysis and research, it seems there's no danger in reducing vitamin D from wearing sunscreen. So in reality, we should continue to slip, slop, slap as we've always been told, 
because at the very worst, even if we do become vitamin D deficient, we can take vitamin D supplements if we absolutely have to. And there is really, you know, there's no pill you can take to cure skin cancer. So let's keep on with the sunscreen for now. Everybody's free to wear sunscreen. I think we're lost. We're not lost. Not even any short range radio signals yet? Except for a single, very powerful radio emission. Of course, a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment. The science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling. Of course, that's uh, it's mostly on the theoretical side. What's so far? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. I have made clear before that I'm generally not a big fan of evolutionary psychology. If you know what evolutionary psychology is, it's kind of a, a field where people, they look for reasons from the distant past for the way that people behave today. Uh, and it's often just kind of these, I suppose you call them like Rudyard Kipling's Just So stories, and they're used to explain uh, people's preconceived ideas and excuse often find to use to excuse um, current inequalities and very commonly these inequalities are concerning gender. So have you ever heard people make claims like, you know, that the gender roles we see today um, come from our hunter-gatherer ancestors? Well, yeah, and, you know, even more outrageous claims that um, men are from Mars and women are from Venus, but I think that's a slightly different... Yeah, that is uh, but, yeah, biologically implausible. Have, it is. Uh, pe people, people have often said, you know, women are better at child rearing and men are better at you know fixing cars or you know whatever whatever things mm. it's a pretty common sort of uh uh claim that we're biologically built differently so we do different things better yeah and that we have evolved that because of the way we behaved back in the um in uh the, often you know the um the paleolithic or paleocene and and that sort of era um now it is possible and also quite legitimate to dismiss all of that by pointing out that's true that we're that even if things were unfair in the past it doesn't mean we can't change it now i mean that's the whole point of advancing as a species anyway but i think it's also worth pushing back because this is also an example of something that you're not supposed to do in science which is to start with an attitude in this case a very unhealthy attitude and look for evidence to support it rather than you know have a hypothesis and try to falsify it with the evidence which is a way that we say science is meant to work it turns out that there is evidence that could falsify some of these ideas and some of it may have been hiding in plain sight all along. But um, we'll start with the new evidence first. This is a paper published in the journal Science Advances. It was published in October last year. Uh, it was actually the cover story of that issue. Not the cover stories really mean anything in science, but the journal had a picture based on this article on the cover, which is, you know, that's saying something, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it, a cover's a cover, you know, like, you made the cover of a, a science journal. It's not quite as, not quite the same as making the cover of I don't know Cosmo or Time magazine or something. But still, yeah, person of the year, um, eight thousand BC kind of thing. <laughs> but anyway, the focus of this paper was mostly on one particular individual that was found in a burial site called. Uh, I am going to apologise for my pronunciation here. It's called uh, Willemaya Padija. Or something along those lines. Um, difficult to pronounce for me because it is in South America. It's in the Andes on the western shore of Lake Titicaca in Peru. Now this person, they labelled them WMP6 because they're the sixth person found in the site. They were buried with some hunting tools about 8,800 years ago. By analysing the bones and the teeth, 
the uh, archaeologists determined that this person was in fact female, aged about 17 to 19 years old. And you know, given that they're hunting tools and also that there are animal bones found in there as well, they concluded that uh, she likely hunted deer and vacuna, which is kind of a, a llama-like creature. Is, isn't that what they bred llamas from? Something like that? Something like that, yeah. A, a wild version of what is now a llama, I suppose. Yeah. Now, I guess one of the things is that, that um, the argument that used to be, I guess you'd hear, is that, okay, just because you found, you know, so you found a female skeleton with some hunting tools doesn't mean that she was actually a hunter. But look, take the case of another individual found at this site. This was WMP1. Um, This is the only other one who was found buried with hunting tools. And this one was a male, aged 25 to 30. And this is the thing, like, we find a male with hunting tools and we assume that they were a hunter. But when it's a woman, people start to question this. And so the, um, the archaeologists in this study have very rightly said, well, what if they were a hunter themselves? Um, certainly analysis of the skeleton is completely consistent with the fact that this person was active and involved in hunting. Um, but they also went to look and see whether there were similar kind of cases elsewhere. So they went and looked at uh, other burials, documented burials in Central and South America from the similar time period. And of... 27 they found where there was hunting artifacts with the with the individual and that the sex of them was known 11 out of the 27 were female so it suggests it's not just kind of an isolated case it's not so uncommon after all and that perhaps we had some assumptions about the ancient world um, fairly wrong and there are other archaeologists elsewhere who are making asking the same sort of questions there's um there's some studies and remains in california they were looking at signs of violence in particular injuries from sharp objects and again you know in a case like that where there's a male skeleton people assumed that the person was a warrior but um they found the female skeletons in this population had a similar rate of injuries so again why not assume that they were also warriors um, well yeah i mean i guess i guess that's the thing is if the basis of your of your claim that the men are warriors is that they have a particular kind of injury and then all the women have the same kind of injury. It's the same argument. There's no, why would you give weight more weight to one than the other? It doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, I guess it comes back to this idea of the assumptions of current modern day gender roles and then projecting them back into the past. And this is, yeah, it shows that some of the, um, the assumptions uh, have been kind of misplaced. Uh, a less violent story, but a similar one, is from a study published in March this year that looked at some remains from Bronze Age Spain. This was about 3,700 years ago. And this particular burial site, there was a, a couple, a man and a woman, who had a lot of jewellery on them, you know, a lot of gold and silver and various things. But the woman had much more than the man, including a spectacular silver diadem. Uh, if you've seen your Harry Potter, you know what a diadem is. It's a kind of crown or tiara type thing. I have seen Harry Potter, but I did not remember that fact. <laughs> now, again, this is not the first woman to be found decked out in such a way. Um, and previously, there's also been a, you know, a gendered interpretation of this. People say, oh, well, their husband must have been a very powerful warrior or something, for instance. But as with the hunters we looked at before, um, you know, Often when you find a uh, some remains with a lot of artifacts with them, you assume that the person who has them is the owner of what they were buried with. 
So um, in this case, if the woman in the couple has more riches, perhaps she was the more powerful one of the pair. Now, this is obviously, this is, of course, is another interpretation that where they were putting on, on these remains with limited data. And none of it, you know, definitively proves that the older sexist assumptions were wrong. But what they're basically doing is questioning why those sexist assumptions were made in the first place and whether we should perhaps, you know, start to look at things in a different way. It's, I guess, putting modern ideas back on the past, but their modern ideas are a little bit kind of more old-fashioned than we would like them to be. Look, one of the interesting things, I guess, is that you know, regardless of what the interpretation was there, there has been clearly a lot of gender inequality in the millennia since these burials. You know, even in the societies examined and the areas examined, the if there was, say, equal distribution of um, hunters and warriors back in... Um, back in this time period, say 8,000 or 9,000 years ago, things have changed in the intervening years due to changes in technology and changes in social structure, etc. But, you know, those might be these more recent developments, not something that we can say is we can blame on our ancestors and the way that they behaved and the way that we um, we began as a as a species spreading out throughout the world. Also, perhaps when we call these kind of things Stone Age attitudes, we're getting that slightly wrong as well. In the history of science, novel and innovative concepts occasionally arise from sudden left field inspiration. Nothing shocks me. I'm a scientist. But I'd rather be remembered for my own small contributions to science. As a scientist, I don't want to prejudice my experiment. I'll let you know in the morning. I am a scientist! I think they're scientists. I bring scientists, you bring a rock star. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to Lost in Science. So fish seem pretty alien, you know. They they leave us cold. We, we talk about a wet fish. And even though we have an evolutionary link to these animals, they're so far from humans on a physiological and anatomical and geographical scale that it's hard for us to see similarities. But I think when we categorise fish in this way, we lose... We lose understanding and detail in how fish live, what their social life looks like, and what they're really capable of. So um, let's talk a bit about fish. Um, I'm going to take you away from thinking about, you know, your battered fish and chips on the plate at the pub later on this week to some more uh, recent research about fish that highlights our similarities rather than our differences. Similarity number one, as fish get older, they lose their memory, just like we do. Turns out fish don't have a three-second memory also. I was going to say, um, does the memory go down for three <laughs> seconds to two seconds? <laughs> yeah, so fish fish have a, have a longer memory than we uh, give them credit for. Um, and as we are all painfully aware, when humans age, our memories decline. Specifically, our working memory and the mental processes that we use every day to um, carry out our tasks. So researchers from the University of Plymouth have found something similar with zebrafish. Um, and if you didn't know, zebrafish are a little striped aquarium fish. They're native to Southeast Asia, but they also happen to be, I guess, the fish version of a lab rat. Everyone who needs to use a fish in the lab ends up using a zebrafish. So they're really well described. The scientists took two age groups of zebrafish. They took young ones at six months old and older ones um, who are around 24 months old and challenged them to get through a, a maze. Now, they found that the older fish struggled to navigate the maze compared to the younger ones. 
And um, to back this study up, the researchers also designed a virtual version of this task for humans um, and found that people in their 70s showed exactly the same deficits in this area and got as um, as fish did. So, you know, that's something we can bond over. We both lose our memories as we get older. All right, now... <laughs> Interesting similarity number two, and I have to say there's a trigger warning with this next section as um, it does talk about illicit drugs because that's right, fish like uh, the same drugs as humans, interestingly. So biologists from Harvard University uh, in the US found that zebrafish really love cocaine. Now, <laughs> How do they snort it? Like, I mean, it seems like it would dissolve in the water. I think it might be dissolving and getting through the gills. I mean, they might they, they might take it differently, but they love it nonetheless. So this was discovered while investigating the, um, the researchers were investigating the molecular basis of addiction and they were using zebrafish as a model to do this. Um, so they dangled cocaine in the fish tank and um, where the like fish hung bag. out around the <laughs> Maybe they did. So... They dangled it where um, where fish normally hang out in a certain visual pattern, and um, interestingly, fish that had, you know, been treated with cocaine, so to speak, um, the 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 article that details this um, describes their movement and how they act afterwards, which is quite hilarious, um, if you'll allow me. So apparently they typically display slow circling with fins more or less extended, indicating arousal. And then small groups of fish um, who are cocaine-induced have a striking increase in aggressive behaviour marked by dominance displays and chasing so that's what a um, cooked up fish looks like, if anybody out there was wondering. They also found that, prefer that um, the preference for cocaine use was an inherited trait with these zebrafish as well. So offspring of fish um, who enjoyed this drug. Um, uh, yeah, so, so fish that enjoyed the drug passed it along to um, their children and they also had a preference for it. Which interestingly is a pattern reported in humans as well. Um, now, Zeb... So, so what you're saying is that, the, that, that some of the fish, only, only some of the fish went for the, went for the cocaine and then those fish had offspring and those offspring also were, were attracted to the cocaine. But other fish of the same in the same experiment weren't attracted and their offspring weren't attracted. So that's yeah, interesting. I don't, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm not quite sure if there was a link between offspring of the not attracted cocaine, but like of not being attracted to to cocaine, but the ones who were attracted to it had a higher incidence of um, their offspring being attracted to cocaine. So I don't know if I don't know if the the converse was uh, was was detailed as also, um, but it, yeah, it's 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 interesting to see. Um, also, cocaine doesn't seem to be the only preferred drug for zebrafish. Uh, opiate stimulants, alcohol, and nicotine um, were all taken up by zebrafish, and they loved them. Everything except THC, which is the main psychoactive ingredient in cannabis, um, was was 
taken up by zebrafish, which is quite, quite interesting from a molecular level. Um, also, fish are extremely sociable. This is number three similarities. As you can probably tell from their schooling behaviours, they love hanging out in a group and can synchronise their behaviour in schools so that, you know, that individuals mirror the movements of their neighbours. But more interestingly, although we think all fish look the same, individual fish within a species, they can recognise other fish from uh, from their own group. So they, they do this mostly during... They do this mostly through smell, so they can they can recognise their family in their own group. And research suggests that young fish prefer their own relatives. So when you're young, you want to stay close by people that you know, but as they get older, adult females prefer females that they know, but prefer males that they don't know. So this helps to prevent uh, prevent in, inbreeding in fish. Now, my last, the last sort of similarity and something that's, that I won't go into too much here because it probably deserves its own story um, uh, and, and maybe a discussion with a fish neuroscientist, but there's a growing body of evidence that suggests that fish can feel pain. Uh, and from what we know since 2003, um, there have been studies, uh, been a whole bunch of studies that show um so biologists have put there's, there's one famous study I guess from 2003 where biologists put acid on the lips of trout and um, these trout then showed classic pain responses you know they were moving away they're rubbing their lips they're going to the bottom of the tank um, they're increasing their respiration and then these responses disappeared completely once the fish were given a painkiller so from that sort of uh, groundbreaking research, um, the researchers then focused on, well, if, you know, they may be experiencing pain, um, but how do they sort of experience pain? What is the sort of, um, what does pain mean to a fish? Um, is it, it's not just the perception of a physical event, but, you know, but it's often an emotional experience as well. Um now, some researchers think fish aren't mentally capable of having an emotional response to pain um, and their pain shouldn't concern us, uh, but, and, and, you know, think that because fat fish lack parts of the brain that in humans and other higher vertebrates are associated with the mental experience of pain. But more and more research shows that, you know, there are different shapes and sizes and organizations of brains that exist in nature. And a lot of complex behaviors arise in animals that, that have these different brain structures. Um, and, and they're, even though they might be very different to humans and other primates, um, uh, they, they still have, they still have these behavioral outcomes. So in fact, it seems like brain structures themselves may be less important than we thought. Mm. Um, so there you go. That's, Hopefully this story, oh. I guess, no, that's, that's interesting. It's, um, you know, looking at fish, I guess, in a whole new light, really. I mean, it's, uh, we assume they're such simple creatures, but they're capable of a lot more. I mean, zebrafish at least. Zebrafish at least. Um, and yeah, zebrafish obviously, um, just one of many, many species and a lot more has to be done in this um, in this space. But it definitely makes you think quite quite differently about, um, you know, what's happening 
uh, in the rivers and the lakes and, and our oceans. So hopefully this story has not left you cold like a wet fish, but if you want more information, there's a great article authored by Matt Parker from the University of Plymouth on the Conversation website. And I guess I will finish there. And that is all we have time for this week on Lost in Science. Thank you for joining us in Getting Lost. If you have any questions or suggestions for the team, get in touch with us by email. We are lostinsci at gmail.com. You can send cheap tweets to us at lostinscience1 on Twitter, or you can find us on the ubiquitous Facebook Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the land of the Kulin Nation and is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find a podcast version of the show on 3cr.org.au or you can tune in the way you did this week when we return in our usual time slot to get Lost in Science! listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.